Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Check out Unpacking Israeli History Podcast. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from Season 6 each week. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Hey there, history fans. We're taking a break so that we can bring you new episodes all December long. In the meantime, enjoy these flashback episodes from the TDI HC Vault. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast where we dust off a little piece of history and place it ever so gently on your brain shelf every day. The day was November 23rd, 1883. José Clemente Orozco was born to Irenia Orozco and Rosa Flores in Zapotlan, El Grande, Mexico, now Ciudad Guzmán. Orozco went on to become a renowned caricaturist and painter known for his fresco murals. Orozco's family moved to Guadalajara in 1886, and by 1888 they had made their way to Mexico City. His passion for art blossomed there, as he admired the art in the workshop of José Guadalupe Posada, a printmaker whose work included political and social commentary. As he passed the workshop on his way to and from school, he became fascinated by the style of Posada's illustrations. Orozco studied art in Mexico City, taking classes at the San Carlos Academy of Fine Arts. By 1898, his parents had sent him to the country to study agriculture for pragmatic reasons. He studied at the School of Agriculture in San Jacinto and attended the National Preparatory School with the intent of studying architecture later. But in 1903, his father died of typhus, so Orozco began working to support his mother and siblings and pay his way through college. He took a job as an architectural draftsman and hand-tinted post-mortem portraits. He wasn't as passionate about agriculture, math, and architecture as he was about painting. Orozco also injured his eye and lost his left hand in an accidental explosion. So he began studying art again at the San Carlos Academy. By 1910, Orozco's artwork was getting attention. That year, some of his drawings got recognition at an exhibition commemorating the centenary of Mexican independence from Spain. The Mexican Revolution, which was unfolding around this time, affected his artistic viewpoint. Opposition to the regime of President Porfirio Diaz spread, and political and social turmoil escalated as power changed hands. 
Orozco participated in a student strike, and he began creating illustrations for radical newspapers. He painted with black in what he said were, quote, the colors exiled from Impressionist palettes. He depicted locals who went to the bars and brothels in his neighborhood. Informed by the context of the Mexican Revolution and the culture of Mexico City, he emphasized injustice and corruption. One of the artists who influenced his work was Julio Rueles, a Mexican symbolist who created dark, hallucinatory images of mythological characters, the subconscious, and his own tormented face. While in Orizaba, working for the revolutionary newspaper La Vanguardia, he met David Alfaro Siqueiros and Diego Rivera, who, along with him, would later be known as the Big Three in Mexican muralism. Dr. Atul, also known as Gerardo Murillo, edited La Vanguardia. Dr. Atul had met Orozco at the San Carlos Academy years earlier and inspired him to embrace Mexican themes in his art. After his solo exhibition, House of Tears, received a lot of negative criticism, he turned to the U.S. to find new opportunities. He got to the U.S. in 1917, where customs took a lot of his paintings because they were deemed indecent. After spending two years in the States working on his art, he returned to Mexico. His career in muralism began in 1923, when he started painting his first murals at the National Preparatory School in Mexico City. Siqueiros and Rivera were also doing murals here. This same year, Orozco married Margarita Valladares and helped found the Union of Revolutionary Painters, Sculptors, and Engravers. As he completed more murals, his work received more praise and international attention. In 1927, he went back to the U.S., where he found inspiration in the artwork of European artists like Francisco Goya and was influenced by the impact of the Great Depression. He stayed in the U.S. until 1934. The epic of American civilization, a cycle of murals that he completed at Dartmouth College, was a highlight of his art career in the U.S. Orozco went back to Mexico after he left the U.S., and he stayed there throughout most of the 1940s, constantly adding to his already robust body of work by creating new murals exhibiting his idealistic and pessimistic perspectives. He painted murals in the Palace of Fine Arts in Mexico City, the University of Guadalajara, the Governor's Palace, the Auspicio Cabanas, and the Palace of Justice in Mexico City, among other locations. He also created smaller works, like engravings, easel paintings, and portraits. He continued to work on frescoes until he died of heart failure at the age of 65. Even though he faced censorship and financial struggles, he played a key role in invigorating the public arts movement and has been honored for exposing Mexican art to a wider international audience. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. Know any fellow history buffs who would enjoy the show? You can share it with them. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. And you can send your thoughts or comments to us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. We're here every day, so you know where to find us. Bye. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that strives to know at least a little bit more history every day. 
I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're looking at the origins of the jukebox, a vital part of music history that's just as fun to look at as it is to listen to. The day was November 23rd, 1889. An early forerunner of the modern jukebox was installed for public use at the Palais Royale Saloon in San Francisco, California. The name jukebox wouldn't be applied for another 30 years or so. When it was invented, it was known as a nickel-in-the-slot player. It may have looked drastically different from what we now know as a jukebox, but its purpose was about the same. It allowed people to listen to music in a bar or restaurant without the added cost of live performers. The first nickel in the slot was invented by Louis Glass and William Arnold, who both worked at the Pacific Phonograph Company in San Francisco. They realized that although the phonograph had captured the public's attention since its creation in 1877, the machine was still too expensive for most people to afford. So, in an effort to bring music to the people, and to make some money in the process, Glass and Arnold decided to rig up a coin-operated device that would allow people to listen to a recording without having to buy their own. To be fair, other inventors were working on similar machines around that same time, but Glass and Arnold were the first to unveil a functioning version to the public. The first model they built consisted of an Edison Class M electric phonograph housed inside an oak cabinet with a coin slot mechanism attached. So far, so jukebox. But here's where things start to differ. The first machine had no speakers or amplifiers. Instead, it had four tube-like listening devices connected to the phonograph. It's a little hard to describe, but if you picture four stethoscopes attached to a big wooden box, you're not far off. Each of those four tubes functioned independently, meaning that up to four people could listen to the same song simultaneously, provided that each of them paid their own nickel. Also, for any germaphobes out there, you'll be thrilled to know that patrons were supplied with towels so they could wipe off the ends of their tubes before or after each listen. Another difference from later jukeboxes was the amount of songs on offer. Modern jukeboxes have many, while the first jukebox had one. The single song was housed on a wax cylinder inside the cabinet, which could be swapped out periodically to give customers something new to listen to. Glass and Arnold got permission to display their first machine in a saloon just two blocks away from their offices at the phonograph company. Unfortunately, there's no record of which song was played first, so we'll have to use our imaginations on that. Despite its limitations, the coin-operated phonograph took off overnight, Within six months, that single player had earned over $1,000, the equivalent of more than $30,000 today. And by the end of the first year, Glass and Arnold had installed another 15 machines and raked in more than $4,000. The instant success inspired countless imitators to whip up their own versions all across the country. 
Soon, there were entire phonograph parlors with multiple nickel-in-the-slot players so customers could listen to different songs in the same location. As the machine grew in popularity over the next decade and a half, improvements were gradually made to the initial design. The sound quality improved when disc records replaced the old phonograph cylinders, and the addition of amplifiers allowed large groups to listen simultaneously without the need to hold stethoscopes to their ears. The next major innovation came in 1905, when Chicago-based inventor John Gable debuted the Automatic Entertainer, a coin-operated, disc-playing phonograph that featured 24 songs to choose from, though the disc still had to be selected manually. Thirteen years later, another inventor, Hobart Nieblack, created a part that could change records automatically, leading to the debut of the first selective jukeboxes in the 1920s. That decade presented a challenge to automatic phonographs due to the emerging technology of radio. Record sales and jukebox usage took a dive when people realized they could hear music for free on the radio. The hard times kept on coming in the 1930s when the Great Depression left most families with little money for recreation, even just a nickel. However, once the Depression ended, jukeboxes bounced right back more popular than ever in a country that was itching to get out and dance again. It was around this time that the automatic phonograph finally started to look like a jukebox. The big four companies in the industry were AMI, Rockola, Seberg, and Wurlitzer. These manufacturers introduced now-classic jukebox features, such as flashy light-up displays and numbered and lettered buttons, that were used to select specific songs. The machines now had their familiar shapes and features, but it was still a few years before they would actually be called jukeboxes. The term originated in the southern United States sometime in the late 1930s. It was based on the term juke joint, which was regional slang for a rowdy bar or dance hall with lots of loud music. The word juke comes from the Creole language and is an adjective that means wild, bad, or wicked. Once the name was set, jukeboxes entered a golden age, with their peak popularity running from the 1940s through the mid-1960s. In fact, by 1945, 75% of all the records produced annually in the United States were put into jukeboxes. The radio shook things up again in the 1950s when the invention of the transistor introduced the world to the joys of portable music. Jukebox sales and usage began to slide from there, but they remained staple fixtures in plenty of diners, bars, and restaurants. Today, you can still find working vintage jukeboxes in many of those same locations, and new models are still produced and used as well. Most of the ones made in the past few decades play songs either from CDs or digital files, but they still look a lot like the ones from the 1950s, complete with domed tops, shiny chrome, candy-colored light bars, and if you're really lucky, those tubes of little bubbles that run up and down the sides. With that much to look at, it doesn't really matter which song is playing. Well, 
almost. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can learn even more about history by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Show. And if you'd like to share your favorite jukebox selection, you can write to me at thisday at iheartmedia.com. My own favorite is J17. Can't get enough of that one. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.